Thanks to you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun Podcast. It is me, your host, Dave Wakeman. Check me out at my website, DaveWakeman.com. Follow me on the Twitter at Dave underscore Wakeman. And send me a tweet. Let me know you're listening. Um, hook up with my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Uh, find out how working with Booking Protect can protect your brand. It can improve your customer service and customer experience, and it can generate new revenue for you by visiting them at www.bookingprotect.com. Again, that's bookingprotect.com. Uh, talk to Kat, Kath, Haley, Simon, any of the team. They're all great people. Uh, they provide a great service. Uh, so again, check them out at bookingprotect.com. My guest today is a guy by the name of Brett Goldberg. And Brent is the co-CEO of TickPick, and we had a really great conversation uh, last year about this time. Uh, I got to know Brett when we were in Las Vegas at the World Ticketing Conference. Uh, he was on a panel I was doing about pricing. Uh, we had a couple ch- a chance to chat a couple times, uh, so this was great to get a chance to catch up with him because a lot had changed uh, since the last time we had like a serious conversation. Uh, so in this conversation today, we talk about. Uh, blockchain and NFTs impact on the secondary market. Uh, we uncover some ideas about spec selling and, you know, pluses and minuses. If there are any in spec selling, um, you know, what it's like to compete in a very saturated or a very fragmented and saturated market where there's a lot of big players and it's tough for a small organization to break through. Um, we talk about how tech pick manages their relationship with their professional sellers. So, uh, small and large brokers. We talk about data and what's the market look like right now because things have changed. Behaviors have changed. Uh, people's willingness to buy in certain situations has changed. So we get into that. We talk about how the pandemic impacted Brett's ability to run his business. Um, we talked about organic versus pay-per-click advertising. We talked about all-in pricing and legislation. Um, and we got to the idea around how TickPick got its name and how they created those really cool and pretty funny uh, commercials a few years ago. So check this episode with Brett Goldberg out. And let me know what you think. I want to welcome Brett Goldberg, co-CEO of TickPick to the Business of Fun podcast. Brett, what's up, man? Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. I uh, I have I prepared for this way more than I normally do. So this is going to be um, – I actually might know what I'm talking about today. So uh, I, I, you know, be prepared, I guess. Um, so I want to start out. Uh, by talking to you about some data, and because you are run a platform, TickPick that I, you know I'm a fan of. Uh, I'm a fan of uh, the you know the way you guys market, the way you guys promote yourselves, uh, all of these things. Uh, but I also have used your data a lot in the past to highlight points I like to make in my newsletter, talking tickets. If you don't get it, get it. Uh, but what does the market on the secondary market look like right now? You know, is there anything interesting that you're seeing? Um, is there anything that's kind of confusing? You know, what's the state of play for the secondary market right now? I think sitting where we are today, it's it's incredibly healthy. It's rebounded better than we had even expected at this point now. I think it's a little hard to understand as a marketplace how much of that is because of some of the fragmentation and all the moving pieces with Vivid going public and SeatGeek about to go public and StubHub being bought by Viagogo. There's a lot of movement, uh, but across the board, I think you're seeing everyone have record you know, record uh, sales in GTV. So we're feeling really good on that front. Uh, 
sports as a whole is back concert there's a huge backlog ahead of us so tons of volume on the concert side i do think you have lots of winners on the concert side and then and then some losers on the performers and probably not to be surprising given almost back to saturation with so much to choose there's only so many different things you can go to so we're feeling really good about where where the ecosystem is yeah. Well, let me ask you about this saturation point, too, because this has been something I have been paying attention to. And there's just so many events, right? I think uh, StubHub reported something about Motley Crue being the hottest tour that they're going to have this summer. Um, we, we can talk about whether or not the, I, believe, I believe those numbers are not at some other point. Um, but they were talking about maybe double the number even from 2019. Um, how, and you talk about winners and losers. How is that amount of saturation? impacting you know sales volumes but also like when people are making the buying decision yeah it's an interesting question there's there's a lot to digest i think in the about a year ago when we started looking at the data you started to see some really different behaviors happening so that last minute sale really no longer happening Uh, i think some of that is coming back now so that you do end up having some more of the spontaneous buying, which kind of went away in, in the thick of the pandemic. So there is some behavioral changes there. Certainly the shift continued to movement um, on mobile and apps continues to evolve. Uh, but yeah, and that saturation, there's only so many concerts you can go to. And when you've got 40 different options, uh, Right now, it's really strong. It'll be interesting to see, you know, in a year from now, you know, does the strength continue? And I think some of that stub up data really is by the sheer number of concerts that are going on, yeah. which then just drives, you know, the GTV. Yeah. I, well, that's what I was saying, or what I was thinking too was like, going, just because you have more events, then this that doesn't necessarily make it good or bad because there's whole bunch of different factors like changes of behavior uh the amount of money people have to spend just the amount of hours in a day i mean i can only go to one concert at night (laughs) unless one starts at like 11 o'clock or something but i might be tired because i'm an i'm an old man now um but i want to go back to the last minute sales that weren't happening because that seems that's interesting to me because in a lot of the primary side people that i work with or i know um especially in sports they were seeing an increase in last-minute sales, and so that's interesting because I, I I thought it would probably mirror each other, um, and so I guess my question is: Was the last-minute sale not happening across the board, or was it like sort of by industry? I think when you talk about a year ago, I think you're probably talking more more recent with primary, and that has been coming back. So that shift has come back now, but a year ago, you definitely saw a huge change in that preparation, the planning, the pod seeding. Um, so there was a shift away. And I do think, at least from what we see, some of that spontaneous behavior is not quite there. And you may be right on the concert side versus sports side. Uh, I also think you think about New York City and people actually at the office and then it being very easy to spontaneously go to an event. That doesn't yeah. happen anymore. You have to spontaneously leave your house now for a lot yes. of people. Exactly. And that, and that has been a huge impact on the sell-through rates for a lot of people because 
it just doesn't like you're rolling out, like you said, rolling out of your office going, man, I'm going to, there's this concert going on at the garden. I'm totally in. Oh, there's tickets left for the Rangers game. I'm in. So that totally, it totally makes sense. It was just curious because a couple of teams, even last summer, were st- it, they were still having some of this last minute stuff because they and they laid it out for me. So I was curious, but that doesn't mean it's across the board. It could just be those couple instances that I saw. So I, I was just curious about that. Um, but let me ask you this then, um, because you talked about like the changes that the pandemic brought on, and you know some all these data points. How did the imp- you know how did the pandemic impact you and your approach to business, and then how TickPick is operating its business? Because you seem to have, um, you know, you. Well, I mean, you personally have done a, you know you've done a nice job. We've we've we had a chance to hang out, um, but also it seems that the business has recovered. Um, you know is pretty stable, I guess would be the way of doing it, right? You guys have, you know, don't seem to be um, having as many crazy ups and downs as like other people I've seen. I could be wrong, but I'm going to give you that, uh, that compliment. <laughs> so take no, it I run. think we got lucky when we raised money in 2019. And, and so we were not fully scaled up in the hiring. So when we wanted to do some pullback, it was pretty moderate and probably only let go about 10% of the staff at that time. And throughout the, the pandemic, I mean, one, it wasn't like the whole country shut down, like thank goodness for you know Florida and Texas and you know some of the South that continue to have events. So there was you know some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I'd say that some of the things that have changed is that hybrid approach. So we used to have you know a lot of our call center folks in our New York City office Pre-pandemic, we started to shift to Oregon. During the pandemic, we've now allowed fully remote on that front, and we've even explored uh, Mexico and other areas within within um, the Northern Hemisphere. So that part has definitely changed and shifted. I think we're going to try to figure out that balance where you still have top-tier support, and particularly on the broker side, making sure that you've got reps and people that you can get in touch with very easily. Uh, we all went through the, that pain process where we couldn't scale up quite quick enough uh, in the early days when sales came roaring back. Uh, and besides that, I think, yeah, we've continued to grow the business from that bootstrap mentality of we're going to make money and a little bit different than some of our competitors. So even when you've got the, the hiccups going on in the market right now, the approach has not been burn cash and growth at any expense. The approach has been grow in a profitable way. Uh, you, you know, that's why I, I also appreciate what you're doing because, you know, me, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. I, <laughs> I say that all the time, you know, and, um, but you brought up the idea of growing now. And that's something I'm curious about. And we talk about a lot. Right. Um, I talk about it with everybody. It, you know, it's how do you grow? How do you grow? How do you compete? What's your strategy? What makes a successful strategy? Um Knowing now, you talked about some of the competitors having a lot more money because they have uh, either gone public or they have a you know big pools of cash from investors. It's a competitive marketplace, you know, environment for secondary market businesses and platforms. How do you guys compete in the market now? I think by having that mentality that we have and being somewhat lean, uh, being product focused, being price. Conscientious, conscientious, so making sure that we are the lowest price 
and being able to fulfill that. Sometimes that may mean not participating in league deals that may cost a certain amount that ultimately get passed on to the consumer. Trying to solve things through technology and taking really complex problems and making them simple. Uh, that that's where we've excelled. So we've got you know a dev team of 10 to 15 people that I would say match you know all of our competitors dev teams. Uh, and I'd say even like you look at our best seed algorithms, there's a lot of room for improvement on those, but we're 80 to 90 percent of the way there. And sometimes that's good enough. And mm-hmm. the consumer, you know, would I love to get a little bit more accurate? And sometimes you'll have a ticket seller say, hey, how come my seat's got a B plus deal? So, well, because there's a general approach taken to it and then it would take a human to interact and to improve some of that. We haven't gone down that that ML AI approach on the data side yet, but certainly are starting to get pretty deep in the data science world. Yeah, and th- that's a good lesson for everybody too. Like a lot of times with some of these decisions, if you can get to 80 or 90% of what you want, that last 10% can be overwhelming. And everybody's moving for perfection when really I try to get people to do progress, like just, get, you know, because you can tweak these things as you go. Right. But if you sat there and waited for the perfect uh, seat recommendation and rating map, you might never get it done. Right. And, and you know, and that's a good lesson for people that I hope they don't miss. Um, so what I, I guess the next question then that leads here is when you talk about being product focused because you're lean and you're price conscious what does that mean because like for me it probably has a different definition uh and i'm curious what yours is because you know and that i definitely probably sprung one on you <laughs> no that's fine uh yeah so product folks like in the early days when we started take pick we were really trying to be innovators and differentiators so we went down the bidding platform approach Ultimately, I don't think we quite got you know product market fit there and pivoted to be all in pricing, number one priority, uh, lower price tickets, and the algorithms help people figure out which which tickets they should buy. Uh, then we were really early on the app development side, so really focused on that product and that user experience and really trying to build something that we utilize. So when I look at some of our competitors and the way their product and their user experience, Sometimes there are products that are sharper looking than ours, maybe a bit more refined, but where I think we excel is really building something that people want to use in a very practical way and trying to help them get the best ticket at the best price. Uh, so that that's where I mean on, on that product and that user experience. And then adding on, you know, everyone's added on insurance, but we're looking at unique ways to tack on insurance that is part of our product roadmap. We've looked at how to make it a more social experience, so making it really seamless on sharing those tickets. It used to be a lot easier when it was a PDF and you could share a QR code, and and that was a really social experience. Now with the transfer, it's gotten a little bit more complex uh, with the lack of control there. Uh, There are some things in the pipeline on the selling side that we're pretty excited about working on uh, from a fan perspective, consumer selling, which I think has been somewhat neglected. So really trying to continue to innovate and explore and create new products. Yeah, no, that, that that to me is very helpful and it makes complete sense. And it actually opens up the door to a couple other questions that I definitely had made notes of. And I'll start with the first one because you talked about be, uh, leading the way with all-in pricing. And I know that that is a, um, a big battle in New York State, if I'm not mistaken right now, and maybe a smaller, uh, fight at the federal level. And um, 
you know, to me, it's just it's it's probably good business because it's best for the customer. But I also know there's probably a lot of resistance to it. Um, I, I know everybody's involved in this and I'd like to hear your position on this and like kind of like what what's happening in New York, because I know that there's a lot of people who are involved in that right now. It's kind of funny because a couple of years ago when this started to get talked about, I was a little unsure. And even when StubHub went all in back in 2015, 2016, I was like, oh, man, now we're no longer the only one doing this. And I thought it may have had a, a negative impact on our business, even though the price comparison now is going to be more straightforward. So, you know, the, the research that we had done, we actually had a third party do this, a thousand data points and they uh, compared ChickPick to StubHub on the matching same exact listing. And we were 10% cheaper on average across the board. And 90% of all listings were were lower on TickPick than on StubHub. So I, I can say pretty confidently that we do save consumers 10%. When you don't have all-in pricing, that is uber complex to try to get across to a consumer yeah. when you can't actually make it to a checkout flow to see that final price at times without putting your credit card in. So I just think the abuse that's kind of evolved has gotten even worse than it used to be. And the AB testing to optimize these checkout flows have gotten so bad that even some of the good players in the space have been forced to play in this world and these tactics because otherwise you're just gonna lose the sale. Um, so it's, it's ironic as a libertarian um, to be supportive of regulation, but being around this for 11 years, it's pretty clear that without it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I look at it, and there, there's a different angle even as you were talking about that I would look at it from, which is like, it's just simpler for the customer. And the amount of um, friction in the sales process is likely to harm your conversion rate. You know, so there's like, it's not even just the price of the ticket. It is also about conversion rates and making a sale just in general. But, you know, that's just me. Um, so then let me ask you this then, because the other thing you opened up the door for was the idea of technology being playing a part you talked about the pdf and being able to send a qr code to somebody or not a qr card but a pdf to somebody um people have a lot of questions about nfts and blockchains now and uh their impact on people's ability to sell and resell tickets uh how you know do what's your take on this because i'm often like going if you want to talk about complexity and like uh, a technology that's in search of a solution, I often look at uh, the blockchain and NFTs, but I, I keep waiting to be proven incorrect. Yeah, not to give Ticketmaster too much credit here, but they <laughs> kind of solved this problem already. So that's what was so ironic to me when when this whole blockchain piece got brought up. It's all of that already exists within Ticketmaster's technology. So you want to transfer, you can transfer. If they want to put controls and restrictions on it, they can. There are regulations in place, you know, in the state of New York, you can't limit uh, transferability. So it needs to be allowed to be transferred, but they have that technology. They, they already have this. And the idea of, you know, blockchain for the most part is to decentralize things. In our industry, you're never going to have a primary ticket seller who's going to want to decentralize. The whole point is they've paid for the rights to be the primary ticket seller. 
And then they have the technology that allows for the transferability and, and for them to know who's the rightful owner. So I, I think they were ahead of this one. Um, you know, maybe someone will claim, well, yeah, if you had blockchain, though, then you could allow the original content holder to always get a piece of the resale. But kind of exists in the NFL deal already that's built off of the Ticketmaster technology where if something trades on SeatGeek or StubHub, an authorized NFL uh, seller, there there is a piece that goes back to the NFL on that situation. So the solution already exists here. So I don't like it. That's where I, I don't I don't really buy into some of this. Yeah, I, I believe I'm with you. It's like it's old technology and the um, the idea that like it didn't exist or there's some like magic bullet that's going to fix it all is always seems like a little bit like I have something to sell you to me. But I, I was curious because I ask people, you know, and I'm completely willing to be uh, converted or uh, shown a better way. And I'm just like, going, I don't see it. <laughs> and then these NFTs, I'm like going what do I need a, a JPEG of a, of a Batman uh, uh, movie poster? I was like, come on. <laughs> the, the NFT is a little bit different than the blockchain, right? You're talking yeah. about it's the way we approach the old school ticket stub. And so mm-hmm. is there a digital ticket stub that is going to be valuable or not? And maybe for Super Bowl type events, um, but I don't think these things are really that liquid. It's a very small subset of people that trade yeah. ticket stubs. Mm-hmm. And so your you know weekday Mets game NFT, there's no market for that. Right. So it's yeah, it's a, uh, it's a ticket stub that's maybe a little bit valuable to the individual that went there. But I don't really buy into it too much. Right. But then you're, you have the complications of storing it and like having a wallet. And all. It, it all just seems like too much to me. But, I, you know. People want to know the they, they they talk about this stuff. So I was like, well, let me ask Brett what he thinks because but I did not know that we would be making fun of it. So that's good. <laughs> I mean Kings Or I make fun of it. That's fine. Just blame it all. There, there's some good use cases. I know Yellow Hearts out there and I know they feel yeah. very differently. They got a whole business on this, and I think they've got some good use cases where you know I think it was tickets to every Kings of Leon show in the future. That was sold through an NFT. Did it need to be sold through an NFT? Yeah, that that's up for debate. But I think there's unique marketing aspects of it. I remember when the Warriors were selling their rings and they were they were doing some interesting things. Mm-hmm. So there's creativity that's yeah. around this. Right. And and I, I think I fall down where you two do on this Kings of Leon example. It's like going, does it need to be an NFT? And the answer is probably no. But I appreciate that if that's what it takes to get people to be more creative, then I'm all for it. That At least that's where I fall down on it. I'm like anything that will get people to be more creative in their approaches, then I think is a plus. So if it takes an NFT or blockchain to get people to think more creatively, I'm sold on that idea. But that's, you know, and I think you you know me long enough that like you would go, I know that's true. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. OK. So then let me ask you then uh, we'll go into like a, a part here about the about the relationship between TickPick and the brokers, um, just because there's a lot of brokers that will listen to this, a lot of brokers that um, read the newsletter. Um, so my first question will be like, how you know, how do you think about managing the relationship with the sellers and the, especially the professional resellers? Um, because it is a competitive marketplace for their their inventory and their attention. Um, you know, 
and it can be I, I'm guessing for you for you it can be kind of complicated and you know not necessarily always clear actually really opaque is probably more accurate I I think we're well aware that professional ticket sellers our are our supply and they're our lifeline of our business and I think you know for non professional ticket sellers that are listening the idea of ticket brokers has completely evolved over the years where it's not just mom and pop shops you know these are very complex organizations very data driven even some of the one or two person ticket professional sorry the professional ticket seller organizations they've got enough technology and enough operational support behind them that they could be selling millions and millions of dollars by relying on technology and fulfillment. Uh, so I just want to kind of set that for, for non-professional uh, ticket sellers. For us, you know, we want to be the number one most broker-friendly marketplace. And we think that pays dividends to us in, in multiple ways. Having uh, these great relationships with ticket brokers uh, provides us fair pricing. Uh, so for the most part, I would say 80 to 90 percent of ticket sellers are going to provide a listing price that is the same payout that they expect from TickPick versus our competitors. That's pretty critical for our consumers then to be getting the best price. It's a, you know, when I talked about that that comparison on ticket prices on TickPick versus StubHub, and there's 10 percent of the inventory that's give or take equal pricing. You know, that's because someone's not giving us fair pricing so that then, you know, likely that inventory really doesn't sell all that much on TickPick. So if you don't price it fair across the board, then it's not going to sell as well as, you know, the peers, um, which we see in a lot of. And then when people do give us fair pricing, then it's, oh, you guys are actually five, six, seven. You know, I think some of the smaller brokers that have higher sell fees on other marketplaces may see. Uh, percentages up to 20% of their inventory will flow through us or sell through us. So I think there are complex relationships. There's complex, you know, what adds even more complexity to our business than some of the major marketplaces is also our B2B platform. So when you have actual professional sellers buying inventory from other ticket sellers. Um, And what's been interesting, and I know you brought this up in our pre-call, is some of our own policies uh, on our B2B, we call TickPick Pro, uh, on that platform. And you're trying to create more or less the same policies for the consumer versus the B2B. We have made some recent uh, shifts, mostly tied to the Olivia Rodrigo um, fiasco, where they went and they got incredibly aggressive on canceling tickets. And in that moment when that happened, and prices went absolutely haywire. And so there are actual sellers that had inventory that sold, but then they got that net got pulled from them. And so we tried to navigate that as best as possible, similar to other marketplaces. If a seller could show to us that they had those tickets canceled on them, then we were letting them out of that B2B sale. I think about that more like from a stock market perspective. In a stock market, when there are really extreme, crazy events that happen, they can shut down the the exchange and mm-hmm. sales will not actually go through. 
we're trying to view that in a similar way on the B2B platform where you have these heavy news-driven uh, events that can change prices in a matter of minutes uh, to be two, three, four times the price. And that also could happen in the middle of night and then think, well, which is actually what happened with Olivia Rodrigo. It did happen, I think, around nine o'clock at night. And so you could wake up the next day mm-hmm. and every piece of inventory you had sold on every single exchange multiple times. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're trying to fine tune some of these policies. I know you didn't ask about it, but I know it's a, it's a heavy point right now. Oh yeah, and the way you described it as being similar to the stock market, it's a circuit breaker. So that like, and that, you know, people will be familiar with that term. That's like, and that makes um, total sense because it doesn't benefit anybody to have, um, you know, a lot of busted sales. You know, <laughs> it's as simple as that. So then let me ask you this then, since you already answered the question about the B2B marketplace, what about spec selling and spec sellers? Because those they can create problems in the market. And I think, um, even though it probably isn't a huge issue in a lot of cases, when it does happen, it is very high profile and it it, ca- it causes extreme destructive destruction to the um, the brand equity of the market and the idea of be ticket resale and ticket sales being safe and secure. I've, I'm pretty conflicted, right? Running a marketplace here as a you know ex-finance person who's well aware of short selling and how that works and supportive of that conceptually in that marketplace, I could see a case where it has a purpose in the ticket industry as well. So I think there's there's probably lots of different viewpoints. If you are a ticket seller that's got a big position, you're going to hate the fact that someone is going to be specking or selling tickets for that event that they don't actually have yet. Um, so you know, in that case, you're going to hate that in that scenario. I think there are events where, like a Super Bowl, where you have certain sellers that play in this world, have their relationships, know they're going to be getting inventory, and are listing them with the anticipation, knowing that they're going to get them. I do think they bring real efficiency to that market and bring uh, better market prices to consumers. We all know what happened in Super Bowl 2015. I'd hope that most marketplaces now are aware and have changed policies. Like I know we have very clearly payment type, um, payment terms have changed. Who you're going to allow to sell has changed. Uh, so I think there are events where it certainly serves that purpose and drives efficiency. I think there are events like Broadway, and that gets pretty mixed where I've seen both sides where there are sellers that have access to box seats, whatever it is, they have real access to it, and that's serving a purpose as well. The flip side that I've seen a ton of is tons of listings that don't actually exist, and it looks like there's tons of inventory and availability for these shows, but may not actually be there. And I'll just give you my own anecdote. I um, couldn't go to a Broadway show last minute. The other week, I had I bought my tickets on TickPick. I bought some of the best seats. I went to go sell them at the same price. It was the lowest price that was available. And when I went and then looked, though, there were like 20 to 30 other listings in Center Orchestra which were all kind of like, even for me, I couldn't tell what mm-hmm. was going on. Um, and my inventory, my tickets never end up selling. 
I'm not blaming the spec entirely. I was I was actually cheaper than them, but to a consumer who saw it, there was no urgency. It seemed like there was tons yeah. of inventory. Yeah. It made it more confusing because there was like 16 seats in that section in that row. So I do think it depends on the event. Uh, so there's there's lots of minutia. And then on the regulation side, New York does have regulation that requires certain disclosures on spec. And I think they're even talking about in this current uh, bill that they're working on, I think they want to get rid of it entirely. So um, there's there's a lot. It's yeah. it's uh, you know no matter how you answer it, you're going to bother someone and they're going to say you're not understanding this or you don't understand that. Um, there's yeah. a lot of different viewpoints. Well, I think it, it um, it's the same way with the all-in pricing. It's um, you, if you've been around long enough to see the th- see how things work, you realize that um, something that maybe has a positive benefit can also be manipulated to where it gets to the point where it's um, uh, it, the negative connotations seemed out in, in people in the customer's mind or in the legislator's mind outweighs any benefit that has. And that's the way I see the spec selling as well. It's mm-hmm. like it doesn't it's not good or bad, but it has been used in a way that it has become bad in many people's mind. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, it's really hard to tell what is a spec sale. Like you would, realistically, it'd be very hard to police. Um, With that said, I think I was on a call with, you know, a larger group of uh, brokers and they were even talking about, you know, fill rates on this. And I think to your point on the bad actors, it's such a small amount that ends up going bad. But that then outweighs the positives potentially, particularly from a political stance, right? As well, well, because those fill rates are always for like big, like high-profile events. It seems like I mean, you know, so it's a BTS concert, right, at like a small venue in Vegas, or it's the Super Bowl, or you know, it's a big playoff game, and so those are going to have just by nature a lot more attention focused on them, and so any issue is going to become a much bigger issue. I mean, I. I'm a marketer. I understand the power of PR to tell a story. I mean, that's that's what happens because I'm sure that the you know the fill rate of them not being filled is probably under one percent. I mean, probably way under one percent. But try telling that to the person who doesn't doesn't get their ticket to the playoff game and they're standing on the steps of the arena crying and they got a camera in your face. It's a bad story for everybody. I I, I completely understand. All right then. Two more questions, then, and, and then, um, so the first one then is we're talking about the relationship between you and the sellers, the brokers, um, and we've talked about growth. And one challenge that I I, I want to understand because again, I I really am a, a um, I'm a fan of Kyle who handles the marketing for you because he does a really great job. He was telling me recently about the. Um, influencer marketing campaign he's been running and i was like oh that's like really cool because like a lot of these things end up being completely bs because there's just like no return on investment there's no real impact for him and he was explaining how um you know he did this research and he walked through the thing to get actual impact from this so i was like thought that was really crazy um and i mean in a good way uh so i want to ask you about as you're growing the market right you're trying to be focused on profit be smart about this whole thing how much of the growth is organic and like people just sticking with you and how much of it is driven by pay-per-click and like other forms of digital advertising that can get pretty expensive. Yeah, it's a good question. It, it all depends on what type of attribution you're looking at. So mm-hmm. we could spend probably an hour talking through, you know, growth and marketing. 
And so we look at multiple things. We've got exit surveys that give us insight. Uh, you talk about Kyle, you know, on the exit survey, Kyle, who runs our, our social uh, and a lot more. You know, on the exit survey, we've got Twitter as a as a field and give or take about 5% of people respond saying from Twitter. That's all organic in that it's not paid. Um, there are some influencer deals as well. So then there is a, a payment there. So I think, you know, the definition of organic and paid, uh, well, paid is pretty straightforward. If you paid money, you, you've paid. But Twitter in itself gets a little bit tricky because mm -hmm. maybe you have a sweepstakes as well. So you're paying for the ticket giveaway or the ticket credit, uh, and those things perform really well for us. When you look at Google AdWords, that's very straightforward, right? So one of our larger spends, very clearly correlated to clicks and attribution. So that's a decent sized piece of our business and then app installs and spending money to drive people to download the app. You know, those are our two biggest buckets. Um, I think where we excel compared to other marketplace is that virality, the word of mouth and the sharing and the organic nature. I think it's partly how we outperform and punch above our, our weight class and, and those repeat rates as well. So that also then comes back to organic. So Someone's pleasantly surprised when they get to the checkout and there are no hidden fees. Uh, people probably don't believe that. And so then we do have higher repeat rates from from our own research and data uh, than our competitors. So more than half our business is organic, uh, but we're always trying to step on the gas pedal and say, you know, how, how aggressive can we get or not? Right. Well, there's. Um, it seems that from my research, there's a, you have a little bit of an excess share of voice in the market. So you have like a little bit more. Um, you, you're getting a little more. You're punching above your weight a slightly more, and that makes sense. So that because uh, you definitely have a better uh, Twitter presence than every, than everybody else. You know, and and it, it takes effort. And so, you know, and it doesn't come easily and it doesn't come on its own. It takes real, real effort. And, and so that it's, you know, Kyle does a great job. And, you know, so I, I want to recognize him because he's not just the guy on the Twitter uh, back and forth. He, you know, he's doing a, some really nice work. So, um, that uh, you know, I just wanted to, rec you know, commend him while we have the, while we have a little platform here. You should get him uh, on the, on the uh I'm planning on it. I'll do. I'll do it at some point. I have to like keep spread them out just a little yes. bit. But that, yeah, he's definitely coming on. So then the final question, and it plays into this last thing about organic and PPC, um, because, you know, uh, well, you. I mean, again, I, I may be telling you something you already know, but everybody else might not know. Is I'm a big advocate for doing both long and short term. Uh, marketing, right? Long-term big brand building type stuff that's like emotionally driven, that helps drive awareness, um, you know, that, that kind of grows with you over time. And then some of this, you know, pay-per-click uh, influencer stuff is short-term sales activation meant to drive immediate revenue and they should pay for each other. And what you see is that if you do both over time, it, you know, the growth is higher. It's just better. And so someone asked me about your TV ad, and then I looked it up and I was like, this is amazing. So how did you, where, where did the TV ad come from? How did you decide that the TV ad was, uh, and was the right thing to do? Do you want, do you want to give the context of the TV ad? You go ahead. It's your, okay. your platform, man. <laughs> well, we'll <laughs> I'm just here business. asking questions. <laughs> when we started the business in 2011, first we, we named it uh, Ticket Picket, 
And so then when I would call ticket sellers and I would say, hey, this is Brett from Ticket Picket, I would, I would virtually get hung up on like people had no idea what I was saying. So we, we changed the name at that time to TickPick. And, you know, Snapchat wasn't a thing then. And then a couple of years forward, and then there was another derivative of TickPick, another name that, you know, became kind of um, a, a household thing that people would say. And so we'd get it all the time. And I'd get the question from friends, family, like, have you ever thought about playing into the name? And I was like, yeah, we thought about it. Like, what do you do with that? And then we had a person uh, in-house who got a pretty good creative uh, team, kind of like handpicked a director and, you know, all internally we worked on the scripts. And we went out and created, you know, these TV commercials. We said we're going to do one that's kind of like, you know, very straightforward. It was this hidden you know, what's worse than hidden fees or, or what's worse than hidden bees? The only thing that's worse is hidden fees. And that was a little bit generic, but it was playful. And then we really laid into the tick pick and having people confused as to what was said. And so we got this one locker room commercial. It was really good. My favorite one, I'm not sure if you saw, is the golf one. So it's these uh, older ladies that are playing golf and she's telling her uh, her friend that she her boyfriend um, got her a tick pick. And she said, what? And, you know, Crack the the wrong way and then shows the phone and says what i said tick pick and shows the seat the locker room i love the way it ends because i think the actor himself uh, kind of went off script and literally said the word and in that one that's where we cut and actually used it uh, and so that kind of just delivered really well like you get people on this kind of surprise piece what was interesting is like talk about performance the videos resonate they work real well uh trying to measure that part very very challenging but it was definitely a different angle and i think you know fast forward now really you got this big video movement on social and we're trying to lean into that so maybe not so much on on the humor side but playing into very organic user-generated type content and that and that's a good lesson too. You're like, well, it performs very well, but actually telling you why or how is hard to do. And that's the challenge that people have when they're doing long and short is they go, I can tell exactly where this is coming in because it's that attribution, right? The last click attribution. The problem is, is though, if you don't build the brand, then when next time you come through, people are like, well, who am I going to go with? I'm going to go with maybe StubHub or SeatGeek because I know the who they are. And like they do that, you know, and so it's a, it's a challenge because people it's there's a lot of marketers that don't know how to explain it and don't know how to teach it. And therefore it can be very confusing. And so like the, you know, the way that, that, you know, that's the simplest way of doing it. It's like, if you don't have the brand and you don't spend on those advertisements and those big ideas early on, later on your ability to drive last click is going to go down and it's going to either be more expensive or less successful. And so you're in the, or, or usually both. And so that's like, it was really well done. I looked at the, um, I looked at the, I saw the, the old lady one. So, <laughs> cause I was like, well, I got to check these out before I ask the question to make sure they're as awesome as I, as everybody says they are. Um, because so that was the most popular question that people sent to me. <laughs> so thank you. Um, Brett, how do people find you on the internet? So where, where do we want to send people to? Well, obviously TickPick, the, tick, wow, TickPick.com. But if you're trying to look for me, you know, personally, uh, LinkedIn, Brett Ian Goldberg, um, my email is Brett at TickPick.com. Pretty straightforward. So you can shoot me an email if you want. Awesome. Thanks, man, for doing this.
All right. Thank you. Let me know what you thought of my conversation with Brett Goldberg by sending me an email. It is my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. Check out my website, DaveWakeman.com. You can sign up for my newsletters, um, follow my blog, find out when I'm going to uh, be in your town. Uh, some upcoming dates that I will be announcing later this week uh, in New York and London. Uh, there's also a potential one in Australia, but we haven't locked that down yet. Uh, so those will all be there as well. Uh, make sure you check out my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Uh, they can help you protect your brand, uh, improve your customer service and the customer experience, and create new streams of revenue. The data on refund protection is pretty clear. Since lockdowns ended and tickets have gone back on sale, Customers are taking up refund protection at rates that are much greater than they did before the pandemic began. And this is just a clear indication that people are looking for that peace of mind. There's still a great deal of uncertainty about whether people are going to get sick. Um, there's a, whatever fifth, sixth wave in America is going on right now. Uh, so refund protection can be a really, really positive tool to use to help make people feel much more uh secure in their purchases. Like we talked about with Amanda Lester on the last episode, uh, people are looking for ways to de-risk their purchases. So offering refund protection can be a valuable tool in that. So check them out at bookingprotect.com. Again, that's www.bookingprotect.com. Uh, make sure you talk to Kat, Kat, Simon, uh, Haley, uh, any of the team. They're all incredibly great people um, and they will do right by you and they provide a tremendous service. So check them out, bookingprotect.com. As I have been saying here uh, throughout the pandemic, if you need somebody to talk to, uh, don't feel like you got to go through this thing alone. Send me a note, daviddavewakeman.com. I'm happy to, even if it be a shoulder to cry on, uh, ear to, to, to bend, or if you just want me to tell some awful dad jokes or some crazy um, stupid jokes, I'm happy to do that as well. So send me a note, daviddavewakeman.com. As always, I want to thank you so much for reading the newsletter, listening to the podcast, uh, being a part of this thing with me. I couldn't do it without you. Uh, so thank you so much, and I will see you soon. Hey.